Hi, I'm Matthew Levitt, and this is Breaking Hezbollah's Golden Rule, a podcast that shines a bright spotlight on the criminal, militant, and terrorist activities of Lebanese Hezbollah. Hezbollah is an organization that engages in everything from overt social and political activities in Lebanon to covert militant, criminal, and terrorist activities around the world. One Hezbollah operative was taught by his commander that the golden rule of the group's terrorist unit is this, quote, the less you know, the better. In this podcast, we set out to break this rule. This season, we've talked about Hezbollah's wide-ranging global activities, attack plots in Asia, finance and logistics in the Gulf and Africa, surveillance and procurement operations in the United States, and even the group's digital footprint. Now, for our final episode of Season 2, we travel back to where it all began, Lebanon. Hezbollah maintains a unit dedicated entirely to carrying out assassinations there. Even as it carries out plots abroad, the group uses this specialized team to eliminate its rivals at home. As we discussed last season, Hezbollah's leaders insist that everything they do, they do for the Lebanese people. The group has created a successful model of social welfare governance in Lebanon by providing various social services like education, healthcare, financial institutions, and even their version of the Boy Scouts. These services help Hezbollah build support at home in Lebanon, thus allowing the group to subvert the Lebanese political system to serve its own interests. Hezbollah buys support when it can, but when that's not enough, it turns to murder to eliminate opponents and intimidate people into submission. In the movies, a terrorist group's elite assassination squad would have a cool name like the Wolf Pack or something like that. But this is not Hollywood, and Hezbollah's assassination team is just known as Unit 121. This assassinations team, this Unit 121, was known to be controlled by Hezbollah's top leadership, according to the officials we spoke with. That was Joby Warwick, the investigative journalist from the Washington Post who we heard from earlier this season. He is also the author of several highly acclaimed books, the most recent called Redline, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. By 2005, the time of the Hariri assassination in Beirut, it had already been active for several years under different names. Our sources describe Unit 121 as highly secretive, It consisted of dozens of operatives and was totally disconnected from the rest of Hezbollah. It took its orders directly from the top, from Hassan Nasrallah. The existence of Unit 121 was revealed in 2020 after the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, or STL, ended its 11-year investigation into the assassination of former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafi Hariri. Hariri was killed by a suicide truck bomb in Beirut on February 14, 2005. The attack killed 22 people and wounded over 200. Intercepted communications confirmed the existence of the assassination unit that had been behind a series of deadly car bombings, targeting a long list of Lebanese military and political leaders over the course of at least a decade. What we learned in our reporting was that there was evidence tying all these various assassination attempts to one another and then linking them either to Hezbollah militants backed by Iran or to other operatives inside Iran itself. And this evidence was being amassed and pieced together by intelligence officials in at least four different countries, sharing tips and leads and trying to build a comprehensive picture. Little is known about the secretive Unit 121, but as a result of the STL investigation, 
We know about one senior commander, Salim Ayash. We know that Salim Ayash, a senior commander in this unit, was singled out in the ruling of the International Tribunal on Hariri as being responsible for Hariri's murder. There, there were a couple other folks who were later identified in the appeal, but he was uh, convicted in the initial trial. David Schenker is the former Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. The State Department in 2021 actually issued a rewards for, for justice memorandum, you know, a $10 million reward for the rendering of the arrest of Salim Ayash. But this is a key tool of, of Hezbollah's power. It's, uh, its ability to go out and take care of its opponents, to assassinate its opponents. In the months leading up to the attack, members of Unit 121 followed Hariri around Lebanon, including his trips to the airport, mosques, dinners, and even to a meeting with Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah. The purpose of this extensive surveillance was to obtain information on Hariri's movements, his security detail, and his level of protection at any given time. This would help them determine the best method, time, and location to kill him. For example, Hariri's convoy was equipped with electronic jammers that would have blocked the remote detonation of any explosive. So, the unit decided to use a suicide bomber driving a truck loaded with explosives to ensure that the bomb would go off. When the time came, despite the layers of security surrounding Hariri, Hezbollah's Unit 121 assassins were still able to successfully carry out their plot in broad daylight in the middle of downtown Beirut. Hariri had all protection he needed, blinded cars, bodyguards, etc., etc., and it didn't help him to survive. That was Monica Borgman, a German-Lebanese journalist and documentary filmmaker and widow of Lokman Slim, a Lebanese intellectual and political activist assassinated by Unit 121. We'll hear more from her later in the episode. Four individuals were charged for their roles in Hariri's assassination. Two of the suspects appear to have been low-level Hezbollah musclemen, while the others, Salim Ayash and Mustafa Badreddin, were senior members of Hezbollah's Islamic Jihad organization. Ayash was a U.S. passport holder who headed the cell that carried out the assassination. Meanwhile, Badreddin was a senior Hezbollah official who eventually replaced his cousin and brother-in-law, Imad Mugnia, as the head of Hezbollah's Islamic Jihad organization. For many years, he was Mugnia's most trusted associate and is believed to have participated in some of Hezbollah's most spectacular operations, like the Beirut and Kuwait bombings we talked about in Season 1. Together with Salim Ayash, Badreddin coordinated the surveillance of Hariri and monitored the physical preparation of the attack. Following Rafiq Hariri's murder, mass protests erupted in downtown Beirut that ultimately forced the Syrian military to withdraw from Lebanon after 29 years. Lebanese journalist and activist Samir Kassir helped organize those protests, and Hezbollah took notice. Kassir soon received messages telling him to leave the country, and one ominously read, One day, you'll be found dead on the pavement. Not long after those threats began, Kassir was killed. It was the 2nd of June, 2005. A Thursday, Samir Kassir walked towards his car parked on the street nearby. He sat in the driver's seat, and moments later, as he started the engine of the silver Alfa Romeo, 
explosives attached to the car, detonated. Samir Kassir was killed instantly. Rafiq Hariri's son, Saad, spoke out at the time, saying, quote, The blood-stained hands that assassinated Rafiq Hariri are the same ones that assassinated Samir Kassir, pointing a finger at Hezbollah for killing both Kassir and his father. At this time, Kassir's editor and publisher, Jabwan Twenny, feared he was going to be next given his outspoken opposition to the Syrian regime. So, Twenny left Lebanon and stayed in Paris for a while until he returned on December 11, 2005, to attend a government ceremony. He was killed in a car bomb one day later. The blast, triggered by remote control, shattered windows more than 100 yards away. A series of leaked Syrian documents later revealed Hezbollah's involvement in Twenty's assassination. One document in particular stated, With the help of the members of the Intelligence Department of Lebanon's Hezbollah, Mission 213, which was assigned to them on December 10, has been successfully accomplished with excellent results. Mission 213? Apparently Unit 121's codename for Twenty's murder. But this was just the beginning. Between 2005 and 2013, Hezbollah was responsible for the deaths of nearly a dozen more Lebanese officials. This includes parliamentarians, law enforcement officers, and military figures who challenged Hezbollah's position within Lebanon's political system. David Schenker again. Whether these are politicians or whether they are law enforcement personalities, when they get too close to the bone or become too much of a threat, Hezbollah will just take them out of the scene. Hezbollah traditionally has shown a higher regard for for bullets than ballots. They take matters into their own hands. During the Syrian occupation of the country from 1976 to 2005, Hezbollah had been a compelling force in the Lebanese government, whether or not they actually had a majority of seats in parliament. But things began to change in 2005 when the anti-Hezbollah bloc formed a slim government majority. The anti-Hezbollah, or nominally anti-Hezbollah, parliamentary majority in Lebanon, very critical of Hezbollah, very critical of Syria. They had a slim majority in the parliament. And Hezbollah starts a campaign of assassination. They look to pick off anti-Hezbollah politicians, decreasing the majority. And it gets very close to effectively ending the anti-Hezbollah or nominally anti-Hezbollah majority in parliament. They killed three, four folks. And uh, that could have been, had had it kept going, uh, one or two more people would have really tipped the balance in parliament. Many of these targets were part of the so-called March 14 coalition, which was formed after Hariri's assassination in opposition to the Syrian occupation. This coalition was on one side, while Hezbollah, Amal, and their Christian Maronite allies were on the other. By September 2007, the seventh anti-Syrian politician was killed, reducing the anti-Hezbollah bloc to 68 seats only three more than the necessary majority of 65 seats it needed to win votes. During this volatile time period, Unit 121 was busy. 
Amidst a presidential vacuum and a fear of uncertainty, the Lebanese capital Beirut woke up to a new shock. A booby-trapped car exploded, killing Francois Al-Hajj, the Lebanese army's second-in-command. On December 12, 2007, Lebanese Major General Francois Al-Hajj was killed by Hezbollah Unit 121, along with four others in a car bombing. He was poised to play a major role in the new Lebanese government. Additionally, in 2007, the Lebanese government uncovered that Hezbollah had developed a fiber-optic cable and telecommunication network stretching over 200 miles. The cable network had transmitters and backup generators, so communications could continue even if part of the network was damaged. This extensive infrastructure helped Hezbollah stay off the radar of law enforcement monitoring Hezbollah communication on public lines, ensuring that Hezbollah leaders and operatives could stay in contact with each other. In May 2008, a Hezbollah surveillance camera was discovered at the Beirut International Airport and taken down. A former leading member of the March 14 coalition claimed that Hezbollah placed the camera there to, quote, monitor the arrival of Lebanese or foreign leaders and to kidnap and assassinate people on the airport road. On May 6, 2008, the Western-backed Lebanese government issued orders outlawing Hezbollah's private telecommunications network and dismissed the Beirut airport security chief on the grounds of allowing Hezbollah to install the camera. Needless to say, Hezbollah was not happy about this. Hezbollah Deputy Secretary General Naim Qasim even gave a warning during a television interview that those taking aim at Hezbollah's telecommunications network were targeting their weapons. In response to this, two, three months after this initiative started, Hezbollah took over by force Beirut. Anti-government protesters bring the Lebanese capital Beirut to a standstill. Explosions and gunfire ring out across the city as opposition supporters hold a one-day general strike calling for higher pay. But the protests have become a show of force by Hezbollah against the government's moves to break up the group's communications infrastructure. They had all their troops come in on the back of uh, you know, flatbed trucks and uh, open fire on Hariri's house. It was a remarkable development. And then, of course, Hezbollah eventually, they made their point and eventually stepped down and uh, turned over their positions to the Lebanese Armed Forces, which had basically abandoned Beirut to let Hezbollah come in. Fearing Hezbollah would target them next, a group of 14 politicians holed up in a hotel, effectively under siege. So realizing, you know, they had killed before this, it looked like it was, you know, winnowing down this majority. And so uh, recognizing this, these members of the so-called March 14th coalition checked into the Phoenicia Intercontinental Hotel. Actually, uh, at that, that point, I think it was 2007, 2008, I actually went to the Phoenicia to visit a member of parliament who was my friend. And uh, I had to go through like two metal detectors to get in. And he was in this suite in the intercon. And, uh, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, this looks great, but it's really like Abu Ghraib. You know, we're all here in prison. The politicians survived and eventually left the hotel. After taking over downtown Beirut in 2008, Hezbollah seemed to take a break from its assassination campaign for a few years. That is until 2012. The opposition in Lebanon have called for a big turnout at the funeral of the murdered intelligence official Wissam al-Hassan. 
He's due to be interred at a mosque in Beirut's Martyrs Square. The general was killed along with seven other people in a massive car bomb explosion on Friday. Wissam al-Hassan was the head of Lebanese internal intelligence, a brigadier general in the Lebanese internal security forces, and Hariri security chief. Just before his murder, Hassan was investigating a former Lebanese minister who allegedly collaborated with Syrian officials to plot bombings in Lebanon. An unnamed security official told the Washington Post that Unit 121 was responsible for Hassan's murder. And just over a year later, Unit 121 struck again. The blast shattered Beirut's downtown, an area known for its five-star hotels and expensive shops, just as the working day was getting underway. The target of the bomb was Mohamed Chata, a former finance minister and one-time Lebanese ambassador to the United States. Chata had been an outspoken critic of Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed militia which uses Lebanon as its base, and also its ally, President Bashar al-Assad, in neighboring war-torn Syria. On December 27, 2013, a car bomb exploded in downtown Beirut as Chata's convoy passed by, the same modus operandi used by Unit 121 to kill Hariri eight years earlier. The explosion killed Shatta, his bodyguard, and four others in his convoy, and wounded 71 more. He was on his way to meet then-Prime Minister Sa'ad Hariri, the son of the late Rafiq Hariri. Just one hour before his death, Shatta posted the following on Twitter, quote, Hezbollah is pressing to be granted similar powers in security and foreign policy matters that Syria exercised in Lebanon for 15 years. David Schenker knew Shatta personally. You know, I spent time with Mohammed Shatta and his wife on the roof of their their home in, in Beirut. You know, just, um, you know, impressive, really just lovely people um, who paid the ultimate price for uh, being nationalist Lebanese. Shatta was widely regarded as one of the brains behind the March 14 opposition coalition and their point person with Western governments. But Hezbollah also targeted members of its own Shia community who opposed the group. Here's David Schenker again, talking about the role Shatta played in Lebanese political society. Also a key figure for the anti-Hezbollah, anti-Syrian trend in Lebanon. Probably the smartest uh, Sunni politician in the country. And to remove him from the scene was really, I think, decimating for the March 14th opposition. Political and military figures aside, Hezbollah isn't above targeting civilians who get in its way either. One of the more well-known examples of Hezbollah targeting Lebanese civilians was Lokman Slim. You might remember him from Season 1's discussion of Hezbollah's efforts to undermine stability in Lebanon. Lokman Slim was found dead in his car just 60 kilometers south of Beirut. He was shot in the head. The political commentator and secular activist was known for his fierce opposition to Hezbollah. The Shia political On February 4, 2021, Lokman Slim was assassinated. Just minutes after Lokman's death was confirmed, Jawad Nasrallah, son of Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah, tweeted, and I quote, The loss of some people is in fact an unplanned gain. Hashtag not sorry. According to the U.S. government, Unit 121 operatives killed Lukman. In a letter to senior U.S. officials, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee called Lukman Slim's murder and other similar actions taken by Hezbollah 
as attempts to derail basic state functions for their, meaning Hezbollah's, own political benefit. But why did Hezbollah feel so threatened by him? As a filmmaker and activist, Lukman Slim launched projects aimed at documenting Lebanon's violent history and paving the way for what he hoped would be a more peaceful future. Along the way, he began to speak out against what he described as Hezbollah's intimidation tactics and attempts to monopolize Lebanese politics. Monica Bergman again, widow of the late Lokman Slim. Lokman wanted really to see a better Middle East than we are seeing now. He became one of the vehement critics of Hezbollah. And um, I mean, for Lokman, it was not possible to build up an independent Lebanon when the state has not the full control. I mean, because for him it was clear that the Lebanese state has not the full control as long as there is a militia which is controlling, uh, which was maybe at that time, you could say it was a state in the state. But over the years, Hezbollah became much more than a state within a state Over the years, Hezbollah really took control of the state and established parallel structures. Luqman Slim openly accused Hezbollah of imposing its view of eternal war against Israel and the United States on Lebanon's Shiites and criticized the group for sending fighters to Syria. Foreign diplomats sought out Luqman for his views on developments in the Shiite community. They provided funding for some of Luqman's initiatives and even arranged high-level meetings for him in Western capitals. David Schenker again. Uh, Lokman Slim, uh, actually a dear friend of mine, who I'd known for 15, 20 years, was the most prominent critic, Shiite critic, but critic writ large, of Hezbollah in Lebanon. This guy lived in the belly of the beast. He lived in the heart of Dahia and had this position, didn't hide it, was a prominent critic, uh, public critic, TV, radio, uh, writer. The Dahya is a neighborhood in southern Beirut controlled by Hezbollah. I met Lukman myself several times when he visited Washington. He was a man who cared deeply for Lebanon and who, despite the risks, sought to undermine Hezbollah's efforts to involve Lebanon in a never-ending cycle of violence. Hezbollah took notice of Luqman's access to foreign diplomats and his status as a vocal opponent of Hezbollah. Hassan Nasrallah himself described Luqman as, quote, Shiites of the embassies, referring to his contacts with Western diplomats. But Luqman also received much more explicit threats to his personal safety. Luqman refused to discuss threats for really many years whenever he was asked by a journalist if he feels threatened, if he is afraid, he wouldn't answer these questions. He would make some jokes. In December 2019, threatening flyers were posted on the wall and entrances to Lukman's home, and a group of people gathered at his family's garden chanting threats and slurs. What changed in December 2019? First of all, these leaflets, which were posted on the walls, They were not only threatening or insulting him, they were also insulting his father, and he felt that there is a threat against the whole house. 
and the family. And uh, therefore, it was the first time that he went public. He wrote an open letter saying if anything is happening to him, to me, to his family, to the house, he will is making Nabi Berri from the Amal movement and Hassan Nasrallah from Hezbollah responsible. In response to these threats, the U.S. government tried to help. He had uh, gotten a number of death threats through the years by Hezbollah. At one point, he told me that the U.S. embassy brought him in for duty to warn that he had a significant, credible death threat from Hezbollah and was offered citizenship in the United States. He said, hell no. I'm not leaving. I'm fighting for my country. Duty to warn means the U.S. had specific intelligence about a concrete threat to Lokman's life. Still, Lokman continued his nonprofit work for Shiites in Lebanon while simultaneously continuing to criticize Hezbollah. In January 2021, during a TV interview, Lokman suggested that the hazardous chemicals that blew up in the Beirut port were brought to Lebanon for the Syrian government and Hezbollah was involved. He was killed one month later. He was invited to the house of a friend he hadn't seen for a long time. And so he left at noon. He left Beirut. And uh, he arrived there at around 1.30, stayed there until around 8.30, and then drove back or try to drive back. And uh, what I know that, I mean, he went to Niha. Niha is in, in the Unifil region. It's very close to the French contingent. And um, to go to the house of this friend, you have to take a very tiny road, which leads to the house. And he was kidnapped at this road. And then uh, he was driven in a jeep, or at least three cars, drove to a region nearer to Beirut called Andusia, outside of the Unifil region, and there he was assassinated. Unifil stands for United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon and serves as a UN peacekeeping mission in the country. UNIFIL was established in 1978, and its mandate was renewed once more just days before this recording. In theory, Luckman should have been safe there. Monica Borgman, his wife, called me that, that night at three in the morning to say that Luckman had, had gone missing. I don't think anyone was surprised, um, but uh, I think Hezbollah had just gotten fed up with Lokman, who uh, most recently had been on TV talking about his theory about how Hezbollah had siphoned off tons of this ammonium nitrate in Beirut's port to provide it to the Assad regime to fuel the barrel bombs that were murdering Syrian civilians. He was a real thorn in their side, and um, it's a real um, a real loss for Lebanon and, and I think for the world. The subsequent investigation into Luckman's murder has been described by Human Rights Watch as a failure, highlighting the gross negligence and procedural violations of the supposed investigators. After more than two years, the Lebanese government has not ordered a single indictment or arrest for Luckman's murder. 
my confidence that an investigation might be possible and successful in Lebanon was very, very small. But Lukman's assassination is not the only unsolved murder in Lebanon. No suspects have been prosecuted for any of the country's high-profile assassinations in decades. I mean, there has been the whole series of political assassinations we have documented since the beginning of the independence of Lebanon. We have documented almost 200 political investigations and almost nothing was really, nobody was almost brought to justice, with some exceptions. One reason for the lack of accountability is Hezbollah isn't just preventing justice, it is actively obstructing it. In season one, we discussed Hezbollah's tactics to interfere in the Special Tribunal for Lebanon's investigation into Rafi Kariri's assassination. Hezbollah stole computers belonging to investigators, harassed interviewers, and surveilled STL headquarters. In Lebanon, Hezbollah followed tribunal investigators on the ground and openly intimidated them. The group also collected information on tribunal officials entering and leaving the country using airport surveillance, creating an environment in which the investigators did not feel safe. But perhaps most disturbingly, the group also assassinated individuals they saw as getting too close to the truth, and they used their infamous Unit 121 to get the job done. This was the third attempt at Major Wissam Eid's life. The powerful explosion left him no way to escape this time. And Major Eid also had a very important role in revealing crucial evidence in the assassination of the late Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri. On January 25, 2008, Lebanese internal security forces Captain Wissam Eid, one of Lebanon's top terrorism investigators, was killed when a car bomb exploded on an overpass as Aid drove past it. Aid's bodyguard and two civilians were also killed in the explosion. Aid specialized in tracking cell phones used to detonate explosive devices, but he was killed while investigating the murder of Rafi Kariri for the STL. Hezbollah paid careful attention to Aid's investigation. According to a New York Times Magazine investigation, it was Aid who broke open the case early on by examining cell phone records and linking phone networks to senior members of Hezbollah, including Mustafa Badreddin. But this was not the first time Hezbollah targeted AIDS team. In 2006, a roadside bomb exploded near a two-car motorcade carrying AIDS commander and entourage. His commander survived, but the blast killed four of his bodyguards. Then AID himself began receiving death threats. He continued his work, tracking one phone to the next, making new connections. That's when Aid began meeting with UN investigators to discuss his findings. The day after his second meeting with the UN, Aid was killed. After the STL indictment of Salim Ayash and the other defendants in the Hariri bombing case was released in 2011, Hassan Nasrallah challenged the Lebanese government in a speech broadcast on Iranian state-owned news network, Press TV. Would this government, would it have been able to go ahead and arrest these people, arrest these Hezbollah members? Would it have been able to do so? It wouldn't have been able to do so. And I believe that in 30 days or 60 days or one year or 30 years, 300 years, even after 300 years pass, you cannot arrest or take anyone in because the game is... Hezbollah operatives, Hussein Khalil, Hassan Nasrallah's political advisor, and Wafiq Safa, 
the head of Hezbollah's security apparatus, were later implicated in Wissam Aid's murder. Hezbollah controls its position in Lebanon by creating a climate of fear. The group intimidates activists, the media, and politicians, and silences its critics. This flies directly in the face of Hezbollah's claim that it protects the Lebanese people. In fact, in pursuing its own malign agenda, the group actively threatens and murders fellow Lebanese citizens. And those who try to get in Hezbollah's way, people like Lukman Slim, Mohammed Shatta, or Wissam Aid, risk paying the ultimate price. As always, thanks for listening to Breaking Hezbollah's Golden Rule, brought to you by the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and hosted by me, Matthew Levitt. This podcast is produced by Anouk Mier for Earshot Strategies and written by myself, Lauren Von Fadden, Camille Jablonski, and Delaney Saladay, research assistants at the Washington Institute. The audio clips used in this episode are from Link TV, Al Jazeera, CBS, Euronews, and France 24. To learn more about Hezbollah's criminal, militant, and terrorist activities, check out my book, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. You can also visit the Washington Institute's website at washingtoninstitute.org and explore our map and timeline of Hezbollah worldwide activities. If you've liked what you've heard, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss Season 3.